Bean counter, bean counter. I hate that phrase. It's so rude. Our modern accounting methods are so sophisticated, and and that old phrase is so crude. I'll tell you what it feels like. I'll tell you what to me that means. It's as if it's as if two billion dollars wasn't worth a hill of beans. All right, so back are we good? We look good. Hear ye, hear ye, all ye who hear this here podcast, know this. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The hosts hold no licenses and are not financial advisors. Do your own research before making investment decisions, and we do hope you enjoy this podcast. All right, we're ready. Francine McKenna, welcome back to TC's Chartcast. So great that you could join us again. Thanks for asking. So much going on. Indeed. Um, for the benefit of the listeners, we, we did have Francine on just a couple of shows ago. Uh, episode, episode 26, I've been whispered to by, uh, <laughs> by the official countress of the TC's Chartcast Among many podcast. Other yeah. Um, but so much has happened, and you wrote a very timely piece on your subscription newsletter um, at The Dig about Jay Clayton, uh, and then all the news about Jay Clayton broke, and then, of course, Wirecard and EY and the collapse of Wirecard in Germany. So much to talk about on the auditor side, and so we thought it would be wonderful to have you back on. Um, for, for those that haven't heard the first podcast, you can hear the big intro that Francine gave us, uh, which is typical for our podcast. We're, we're not going to repeat that today because we've already done it. Um, let's jump right in. So uh, I was considering having you back on and discuss it with Georgia um, even before the news about Jay Clayton's uh, potential appointment to uh, the Southern District of New York. Um, when we received your um, in-depth article describing all of his conflicts um, when he was nominated to be the head of the SEC, which is his current position. Why don't we start with you reminding the audience who Jay Clayton is, what is his role, and maybe begin to describe some of the work that you've done uh, digging into him in his past. Sure. Uh, Jay Clayton is the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the United States. And the Securities and Exchange Commission is responsible for all regulation of securities uh, activity according to the, um, uh, the, the laws here for issuers, uh, listed companies, or anybody that has any kind of regulatory or filing responsibility with the SEC in order to sell securities to U.S. investors. And he um, was appointed um, by President Trump um, Pretty early in the process, uh, in January of 2017, um, before Trump was even inaugurated, he announced his uh, nomination to be the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And frankly, you know, he's a pretty well-known guy in the world that he operated in before as an attorney with Sullivan and Cromwell, one of the most prominent, you know, law firms Um not just in the U.S., but globally, uh, a firm that had been very involved in activities around the financial crisis that's very involved in in large, prominent uh, Fortune 500 uh, significant companies when they're involved in litigation, of course, always on the defense side. 
And he uh, was a very um, involved himself in several notable IPOs like Alibaba and other, you know, significant litigation for major banks and other companies. So people know who he is, but in terms of a nomination for a chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, he wasn't seen as, you know, sort of the most logical or, or uh, the the one that people thought were gonna was going to get that job as kind of an elder statesman, you know, leader of the, you know, a regulator. Like, why would he want to do that? He was, you know, a Silicon Valley, you know, successful. He's out of New York, but he worked with a lot of Silicon Valley companies, a lot of just all over the world. It just didn't make any sense. But he took the job and he's sort of a earnest Ernie kind of guy, you know, very uh, uh, good looking, you know, still young, uh, 50, I think it was 50 at the time. Um, and people said, oh, okay, well, maybe he'll be a voice of reason in the administration. He's sort of us uh, viewed as centrist, you know, independent. He hadn't uh, uh, registered, I think, as Democrat or Republican. But right off the bat, when um, his name came out, um, media started going crazy because he has just the longest list of previous clients of any SEC chairman nominee ever. Like people, it was an unprecedented number of, of, of contacts and, and clients in this past. And his wife was a wealth management executive for Goldman Sachs. So, you know, I wrote in one of my articles, um, you know, you can you can get the conflicts because of clients. You can get the clients the conflicts because of some family or job relationship. Um, in Jay Clayton's case, it was a double or triple whammy. He had conflicts all over the place, and so his his nomination hearings were very contentious. Um, there were Democrats that voted against his nomination because there were so many conflicts, and he was viewed as sort of. Uh, way too close to the banks and way too close to some very large um, companies that were that were under investigation by the SEC and um, by the by the Department of Justice at the time. So it's clear that, uh, you know, there's a lot of complication around his nomination. Um, he had been, as you indicated, you know, a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell um, since 2001. He'd been with the firm since 1995. As I understand it, Sullivan and Cromwell is uh, a feeder for a lot of uh, U.S. government appointee positions, uh, I believe second only to Jones Day. Uh, so it's not unusual for um, a president to tap into that uh, talent resource for a certain appointments. Um, but also at the time, Trump had indicated a sense of wanting to uh, relax some of the regulatory burdens on companies from um, their participation in the public capital markets and for investors to be able to have easier access. When you pair that up against the long list of conflicts that Jay Clayton has just by the very nature of his career, um, it could in some ways serve both ends, uh, or at least that is one of the implications that I've read, which is um, by making things a little bit kind of quote-unquote easier uh, on uh, publicly traded companies that might also um, help those publicly traded companies stay out of the, the public eye in areas where they don't want to and, and at the kind of with the, the guiding hand of someone like Jay Clayton. Um, is that a, a double-edged sword and you can't have one without the other? Do these conflicts um, kind of necessitate um, 
or maybe better said, is it uh, kind of complimentary, the, the fact that he's both um, has these relationships with so many companies and is also trying to uh, serve Trump's mandate to make things smoother, easier, and less burdened by uh, the regulatory requirements? Well, it's sort of the inherent conflict of the SEC's mission. So, um, you know, uh, key components of the SEC's mission are to protect investors, but also to promote capital markets. And so, when you have those on, you know, on opposite sides, um, you are typically looking in a regulator for someone who can maintain that balance. And uh, each SEC commission, uh, SEC chairman, you know, sort of puts their own stamp on the job based on their experience. Clayton came in, you know, viewed as sort of uh, someone who would be reasonable, right? He understands um, um, how companies raise capital uh, because he was involved in lots and lots of uh, IPOs and mergers and acquisitions transactions. He understands the, the purpose and, and, and the obstacles that they might face. On the other hand, he's a reasonable guy. He was not viewed as a zealot uh, in terms of laissez-faire, you know, let the buyer beware, uh, throw everybody to the dogs as long as, you know, those with capital can can do whatever they want. Um, this was not, this was not the impression. And he had a, you know, he came out of the gate fairly slow, I would say it was more reactive than anything else. Um, and at a certain point, he was actually in a little bit of a hot seat. Um, when I was writing at Market Watch, there was a view that he had not been aggressive enough in sort of uh, acting on this agenda of relaxing regulation around financial services and around, um, you know, companies that want to raise capital. Um, and he, I think he must have heard that criticism. He must have seen it. Uh, on the other hand, he was getting criticism for not being aggressive enough in terms of protecting the retail investor. So um, they were focused very, uh, in the early years, uh, 2017, 2018, they were focused on a lot of smaller, you know, Ponzi and, um, you know, elder abuse and things that looked very good from a retail investor protection perspective. But on the other hand, they were very promotional about ICOs, about um, uh, the token coin offerings. And one of the uh, commissioners, Hester Peirce, is like called the crypto mom or something. You know, she's so promotional of that. And he didn't come out really strong on that. Uh, he was very, um, uh, you know, sort of measured in his tone. But in the end, um, they were very, uh, they only picked off sort of the most obvious um, uh, uh, violations of securities laws with regard to uh, the tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of people that were using all kinds of loopholes to raise money uh, on uh, various kinds of crypto coin schemes. And so he, I think, is is more of a, a, a libertarian, a, a laissez-faire, but he didn't, um, you know, he, he wasn't enough for some people at some point. And now, you know, to catch up in the last year uh, in 2019 and now in 2020 before the election, um, he, they started going um, uh, crazy in terms of just kicking out one thing, one proposal after another in order to repeal, um, to repeal uh, uh, constraints, 
not via, you know, getting it through legislation. Everybody has trouble getting any kind of legislation through in this kind of uh, uh, very partisan um, Congress and Senate. Um, instead, they went the rule route. So where the SEC could change something or relax something via rules, make it easier for companies, whether it was financial reporting, whether it was not having to do something uh, related to the auditor, whether it was letting private um, companies raise money more easily, um, and other other. Uh, things like uh, a proposal I wrote about, about auditor independence, relaxing a lot of the rules that were put in place in Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002. Um, they started going, I think, really fast to try to take advantage of what time was left to, um, you know, be more aggressive on that agenda of making things easier and not waiting for legislation to change it. I'd love to make it very clear to all of our listeners um, just really how astounding uh, this list of possible um, conflicts of interest uh, are for uh, for Clayton. His disclosures um, or disclosure reports that were provided to the Office of Government Ethics run dozens of pages. Um, the uh, disclosure lists are, you know, 48 pages long, several hundreds of line items. Uh, there are 17 family trusts. There are disclosed over 43 entities that um, are sources of compensation to Clayton uh, beyond his um, status as a partner with Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, as well as um, uh, adjunct, fa adjunct faculty member uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, there's a letter that was prepared by citizens.org uh, that was sent to the senators, I believe, at the time of his confirmation hearings. Um, I just want to read a small excerpt of that because I think it summarizes the um, kind of the depth of, of what we're dealing with here. Um, and then, Francine, I'll ask you to comment on what you found as far as how that m may or may not be translating into the type of actions that the SEC is taking because I know that's something you've been looking at. Uh, so just an excerpt from that letter from citizens.org. Um, as an attorney with Sullivan and Cromwell for many years, Mr. Clayton's client list includes a long list of entities subject to SEC regulation and oversight. They include Volkswagen, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, and Pershing Square, publicly traded corporations that have raised SEC issues involving public disclosures, emission testing fraud, and drug pricing, among others. He has long-standing close relationship with Goldman Sachs, a major player in numerous SEC policy issues, regulatory matters, and enforcement actions. He represented Goldman Sachs and other underwriters on the 2014 $250 billion initial public offering for Alibaba. He has represented multiple major banks subject to SEC penalties for misconduct. He has likely represented many other entities subject to SEC regulation, oversight, and enforcement actions. Um, so as this letter highlights the intricacies of these re relationships uh, are quite complex. You've taken a look at this. What is it that you've been finding as you look at the actions and the activities of the SEC since his appointment? So as you said, his, um, his disclosures, uh, his required disclosures when, when people in the Trump administration used to do that on a timely basis and fairly completely uh, before they actually took the job, um, they're pretty voluminous. And uh, I think uh, he, he not only had to provide a financial disclosure, which you discussed, which had all kinds of, um, you know, assets and, and income sources, um, but he 
negotiated a an additional ethics uh, uh, amend, amended agreement to address the whole idea of which companies he should have to recuse himself from any discussions around uh, enforcement or other other actions, um, legal actions while he's at the SEC. So that's a standard practice. You know, if you have an ongoing financial relationship, ongoing family, close family relationship, some reason why, you know, there'd be not just uh, uh, in fact, but in appearance, the potential for conflict of interest, um, you're supposed to, you know, stay out of it, right? And it makes it hard if the commission is not full with five members, because if you have the chairman having to recuse themselves. So in previous administrations, you had, um, for example, um, Mary Jo White had been an attorney at Debevoise, which was, is again, another, you know, highly prominent white shoe law firm that's involved in a lot of things. And she had to recuse herself, I think, uh, from uh, a number of different uh, situations um, because of her work at Debevoise. But it was a much smaller list um, compared to Clayton. Uh, Clayton was a transactional lawyer. And Clayton has this family wealth. His his wife's family is in, is very wealthy and involved in some other things that also have been reported on. Um, and it it really made for an unprecedented situation. When I started looking at um, uh, you know what happened when Clayton first joined the SEC in that first year, that first uh, few months in 2017, he joined. Uh, he was appointed. In, uh, or nominated in January. He finished all of his disclosures in March. He had a couple of hearings that were contentious, but he got the vote and he joined full time on May 4th um, of 2017. So I had um, the um, opportunity uh, to um, review some data that was obtained in some other research um, uh, by some professors who are looking at the connection between um, SEC investigations and insider trading. And I've written about that before with regard to Tesla and Disney and Under Armour using that data. And I had the ability to look at the data specifically for all closed investigations in 2017, which was fortuitous. Um, that was the last uh, year of information that these professors had obtained via FOIA from the SEC. But it turned out that it's also the first year of Jay Clayton's um, uh, chairmanship. And so looking at the investigations that had closed, that the SEC had closed during 2017, I thought, wow, this is really strange. There's a whole bunch of Goldman Sachs investigations that were closed in 2017 one slightly before he joined and four of them after he joined within the first couple of months. I thought, but that should be a, a, a firm that's on his recusal list. Well, of course it is because of his wife's relationship and his relationship to um, transactions uh, like the Alibaba IPO where he represented the underwriter Goldman Sachs and other underwriters. He, in the IPOs, one thing that's not reported, I think, um, super clearly in some cases is that with the IPOs, Clayton's firm represented the underwriters in most cases. So Goldman, and they're usually Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, or, and maybe one other party like Moellis or, or um, other, depending on whose IPO uh, we were talking about. And so he 
not only has a wife that worked at Goldman Sachs in a very significant position, but he was, Goldman Sachs was a client. And so I thought, wow, that's really interesting that you had all of these investigations. Some of them had gone on for a while, longer than the average investigation, according to the research. Um, the average SEC investigation lasts about three years, right? Uh, some don't you know, end up in any enforcement action. It's a, it's a fishing expedition. They're looking around and they satisfy themselves that there's not something worth um, uh, going after. Uh, in other cases, obviously, something does happen, and something happens also on a criminal basis. There's a referral to DOJ or vice versa, and there's a, a, a big, a significant action that takes place, or multiple actions. In this case, you had four Goldman Sachs investigations that closed in after Clayton came on board, and one shortly before, but after he was nominated and going through this process, and nothing happened. There was no action. And I thought, what kind of batting average is that for SEC enforcement? That's kind of poor. So I went through these disclosures and went through this recusal list. And as you said, the recusal list has 176 companies on it. Okay, that's a lot. Um, and so you, you have to painstakingly go through and say, okay, every single closure of which there were several hundred in 2017 and compare them to the list and look and see where any of the clients that he's supposed to recuse himself from, did they also have, um, you know, uh, investigations active or closed during 2017? And there were more, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, and some that I haven't written about yet. Um, and I thought, well, okay, well, that's possible that they just decided, you know, new chairman, new administration, they're going to clean, you know, out the cupboards and get rid of all the dusty stuff that is, you know, not going anywhere and, you know, close out files and whatever. But did he recuse himself? And um, the SEC did not even uh, respond to my request for comment, other than to tell me I should be sending it not to a specific spokesperson, but to their SEC uh, media portal. Um, but they didn't have a comment, and they didn't answer the question about whether he asked for any waivers or recused himself, whether he was or wasn't involved in these decisions to close these investigations. And I thought that was pretty uh, arrogant. Our listeners probably became familiar with Jay Clayton during the flaccid response to the 420 tweet incident. Um, I'm wondering if one of the investigations that was closed in 2017 might not have been the investigation into Goldman Sachs and Tesla for an infamous equity raise that occurred in 2016. Don't want to put you on the spot. Uh, I know that investigation was closed with no action, but to remind our listeners the history, um, Goldman upgraded Tesla the morning of an equity raise to outperform. And uh, at the same time, there was a death of a, of a young man in Florida who had autopilot on and it T-boned a tractor trailer that was turning onto the highway that he was driving down. And that death was not disclosed um, until after the much needed equity race. Um, was that closed in 2017 or do I have that wrong? And I wonder, you know, I, I don't want to convert this into a bashing Jay Clayton because of Tesla's show, but uh, curious to get your thoughts on his behavior during the 420 incident and the ultimate resolution of that event. Yeah, so that, uh, that story's coming up because that was one also that I thought should be treated separately. Um, when I wrote about the Tesla undisclosed investigations, that's an earlier newsletter, 
um, I just listed out in general for all years. So the, the researchers had data that was from 2000 through 2017. So all SEC investigations that were closed during those years. Um, what you don't know from this uh, FOIA uh, is, are there any that are still open? So they don't have data about anything that's still open and they didn't have data past uh, the end of 2017. But in looking at all investigations related to Tesla that were closed during that period, um, I had a newsletter that said, here's all of them. And I tried to trace them back to um, news, you know, articles, you know, what were they about or could have been about. Um, I looked at probes reporter, John Gavin's very great um, resource where he FOIAs about, oh, he's looking for open investigations or investigative activity. So I'm trying to match up what was closed with what John thought was open and why he thought an investigation open. But what's interesting about the incident that you mentioned is that um, this is a, this is a investigation that was sort of Tesla, but also Goldman Sachs. And sometimes they kind of bundle things and don't identify them very well, whether it's in the response to a FOIA, like John, what John Gavin does, or in even the data that they provided as a res response to the FOIA about the closed investigations. So what's really powerful is when you have a lot of data and you can match stuff up. And so now in looking at um, Goldman Sachs, suddenly I can match these up. And there's an investigation on either side that has the same time frame that looks to me as if it's about that raise. And so when uh, people talked about it from the Tesla perspective, they were thinking that they were being investigated because of that accident, because of the Model 3 issues and also delivery issues and, you know, all kinds of other disclosure stuff around delivery and, and production reporting and all of that stuff. But if you look at um, the documents that John Gavin got from probes in Probes Reporter, the request to Tesla was also about a bunch of, uh, you know, anything related to Goldman Sachs um, uh, acting as underwriter for this capital raise. It was sort of like one point on the request. But if you turn around and look and say they also asked Goldman Sachs about this transaction at the same exact time, so the same exact time period. And so there is a closed investigation for both Tesla and for Goldman Sachs that have the same time frame in 2017. And I'm going to write about that. Yeah. And I could fill in a bit of background for listeners because I'm obsessive and I'm building this <laughs> massive database of the year 2016, which is sort of, I think, the prism through which the current Tesla needs to be observed. Um, at the time of this capital raise, Elon's entire empire was in a very precarious situation. Solar City was insolvent. Um, SpaceX had lent Solar City several uh, two hundred fifty million dollars in the form of purchasing bonds from Solar City, um, and he was in the middle of um, getting ready to bail out Solar City using Tesla equity. And at the time of this raise, uh, things were going extraordinarily poorly for the Model X launch. I believe the SEC was inquiring about something else with Tesla, which is the um, the Model 3 reservation. So Elon famously moved forward the launch of the Model 3. And I think this is the seeds of all of the manufacturing issues and the ramp issues and production hell and logistics hell that have since followed. He was desperate to pump Tesla stock 
moved the Model 3 reservation uh, event to the end of March, uh, early April, uh, literally on the same day that his brother Kimball Musk was getting margin calls on his SolarCity and, and Tesla stock. Um, this is all in excellent documents, um, depositions that Aaron Greenspan has uncovered. Um, and so to me, the, the, you can't look at um, the full self-driving pull forward uh, because of the firing from Mobileye. Mobileye famously fired Tesla because of their excessive marketing and dangerous use of, of their suite of technologies in the autopilot um, offerings. And so it all sort of comes together. Uh, he's, on the pres- he's on the edge of total empire collapse, pulls forward the Model 3, covers up the death of the young man in Florida, actually had covered up a death of a, of a young man in China earlier in January, I believe, of 2016. Uh, and they went ahead and did this needed capital raise uh, in May, and then very shortly thereafter went about the business of saving Solar City, which then led to the solar roof reveal, which led to the birth of Tesla charts, and led to the three of us talking today. <laughs> I, know, I know that's a lot, um, but I would um, make an offer to you that if you need some help with this latest report, I have a lot of facts. Well, uh, the thing uh, I guess that is always interesting to me is that um, the you know regulators and you know those that we FOIA in order to try to find out more about these situations. And you know you have this right, Freedom of Information Act. You're trying to get information that's public. And so we do this in earnest, um, and we expect an earnest response. But what I think um, is, is apparent when you look at uh, someone like um, Jay Clayton, who has so many different tentacles into so many different places, is that when you have more than one issue or problem, with disclosing information about a particular situation. So where Tesla, a Tesla issue that someone is looking at or thinking about or that's been reported is wrapped up with Goldman Sachs, um, which is, a you know, again, a double whammy. You look at that and you say, you know, this is never going, you're never going to get all the information. There are people that are probably going to try to deliberately obscure the full picture. And if you're only piecemealing, you know, sort of how you're looking at it, um, you're never going to get the full picture. And it really takes a concerted effort over time and making sure that you ha- you're exploring all sides of the transaction. But when I can look at now data that says a Tesla investigation was closed, uh, a Goldman Sachs investigation was closed. It's the same exact time frame, and it lines up with this news about these issues, and they were obscuring potentially the purpose of the Tesla investigation under these other reasons when actually there was also this issue with regard to the, to the capital raise with Goldman Sachs. And then all of it just quietly goes away. It kind of gives you a pretty good idea about whether or not or why uh, Clayton was so sort of hesitant to uh, be uh, uh, punitive at all when the 420 issue came up with Tesla and with Elon Musk. I mean, if you remember, his language was so almost apologetic about how you can't take this guy out because he's so important to the company. 
And it may have been because they had been trying to make sure that this company wasn't damaged for a long time. And it may just have been because it would also damage Goldman Sachs. It would also damage all of the other enablers that are involved, like PwC, which is the auditor, and which I've written, I wrote early on in Clayton's uh, uh, administration, his, his chairmanship, when he was out of the box. He has a very strong affinity for working with PwC clients. There must be some referral process going on there because a lot of his uh, clients were PwC-related, like Alibaba. And so Goldman Sachs is PwC. Tesla is PwC. I mean, you have this this very strong affinity. There's a connection there between the firm and PwC, and he's getting all the PwC business. Why? People, you know, become part of a group. They become part of a, a, a network. They can become part of a trusted advisor kind of cabal. And you go back to the same people over and over again. You're going to have Sullivan Cromwell doing the transaction, but who's going to do it? Well, of course, Jay's going to do it because we've worked with him before. And so this is the way things work. And the ramifications of the SEC coming down on Tesla go beyond hurting Elon Musk or Tesla. Okay, It goes into hurting all of the ancillary uh, enabling organizations that would be hurt if that transaction, Morgan Stanley, when I wrote about the, uh, the Tesla closed, trans, closed investigations, it was Morgan Stanley. If you recall, you know, Morgan Stanley has also been very active and has a very uh, vocal analyst in support of Tesla. Okay? Morgan Stanley is one of those companies that Jay Clayton is also one of his former clients and where they closed several Morgan Stanley investigations right after he came on board. So it's an ecosystem of, of enabling uh, uh, actors. And if you hurt one, you hurt them all. And so there's, a, I think, uh, an effort to make sure that unless absolutely necessary, and if necessary, you minimize it to the to the to the to the extent possible, and why you saw all that soft language around the 420 um, uh, enforcement action against Elon Musk. Most recently, Jay Clayton has been in the news for uh, his presumed appointment to replace Berman as the Attorney General of the Southern District of New York. Um, so this makes your newsletters that uh, came out before that all the more timely. And, and Jay Clayton has become much more of a household name uh, as a result of uh, his news presence over the last couple of days. Um, one of the tweets that came out around this time, um, I'm going to read the tweet and then I'll say who it's by. And I know you're familiar with it, Francine, because you commented on it and it's really astounding. Um, but the tweet is, Jay Clayton's willingness to replace Berman reveals that he is deeply corrupt. That means the SEC has been run by someone who is deeply corrupt for three years. Now, this wasn't someone like TC or me tweeting this. It was by Walter Schaub, who's the former director of the Office of Government, of, uh, Government Ethics. Um, that tweet has some weight to it. Uh, what, what do you make of his uh, assessment of Jay Clayton's uh, appointment to that position or presumed appointment? So I was surprised and pleased by Walter Schaub's tweet because I was trying to get a hold of him for my stories. And it may be that, um, you know, he held back, one, because his feelings are so strong. And he also recently wrote um, a very long article for the New York Review of Books about this issue. 
not Clayton in particular, but about sort of the Trump administration's complete disdain for the ethics process. And as I said, you know, Clayton actually um, went through the process, um, honored the process, completed all of his stuff very quickly. So obviously he has lots of advisors and helpers to get all of his material, you know, his voluminous material together quickly. Um, but what is um, notable is um, what's not there. And so Shab was there. He was in charge of the ethics office when all this took place. Uh, they approved his disclosures uh, fairly quickly. But how? what else are you going to do? Okay. The, the amount of information that was there, the complexity of the information that was there, and the, you know, what I can even see is not there. For example, JP Morgan is not on the recusal list. Morgan Stanley is not on the recusal list. Alibaba is not on the recusal list. So a lot of the companies that uh, and firms that have been talked about in terms of being Jay Clayton's conflicts or former clients at the time that the ethics disclosures were put together were not considered to be necessary to be put on his recusal list. So you have all of these organizations that he still has, I think, a very vested professional and personal interest in making sure that they're not, uh, they don't get in trouble or that he's certainly not responsible for them having significant legal and, and regulatory penalties. And they weren't even on his recusal list. So he could uh, easily have been involved in decisions about whether or not there were enforcement actions against Morgan Stanley or against uh, J.P. Morgan. Not Goldman Sachs as easily, but he might have got a waiver, but the SEC wouldn't answer my question about whether he had ever requested any waivers to weigh in on any of those actions. Um, so for Walter Schaub to say that he has been and still is deeply corrupt means that there must have been um, some reason why he was dissatisfied with their uh, with with whatever effort they wanted to do or could have done in that situation. And as you know, you know Walter Schaub, uh, you know, ended up resigning because of the lack of cooperation of the Trump administration in all of the ethics processes. But just because somebody fills out the forms and completes them and puts together a list of 176 companies doesn't mean that. They've uh, done that in good faith or put that uh, put everything down that they really need to. And clearly, um, you know, I've identified things that they ha that he didn't include. And there's uh, a lot of other um, information out there about uh, additional complexity that he didn't uh, he didn't highlight. Yeah, it's a remarkably bold statement for Schaub to have made. Yes. And there is, uh, you know, significant opacity in the disclosures. Uh, and you've hit the nail on the head, which is it's one thing uh, to review what is put in the disclosures, but it's a whole nother to try and understand what might not be there. One of the areas that I'm curious about and have just started to do a little research into um, is something called WMB Holdings. And this is listed a number of times in his disclosures. Uh, Clayton and his family, uh, named through his wife and uh, beneficiaries as well, have significant uh, financial benefic beneficial interest in WMB Holdings, uh, you know, to the tune of several million dollars a year. The WMB Holdings um, 
it's believed that it also has a relationship and may in fact be the parent of another entity called Corporation Service Company, CSC. Um, both WMB and CSC are listed as, you know, providing professional services, um, managing trusts, incorporate, you know, incorporation, administrivia, um, you know, management of special purpose entities and so forth. CSC is listed as having similar, uh, similar uh, activities under its umbrella. But the interesting thing is uh, CSC is quite a large organization. It has, you know, several thousand employees. It services, um, as per its own website, you know, more than 180,000 businesses, including 90% of the Fortune 500. And what's interesting is the Form 278, which are the disclosures that Clayton provided, does not disclose any relationship between WMB and CSC, and yet it's believed that WMB is the parent and they share an address. Um, Have you looked into this as another area of kind of oddity of what is not disclosed, and perhaps this is one of the things that Walter Schaub was so disturbed by. Uh, Yeah, so um, Matt Taibbi wrote um, a really um, long, detailed story about this issue in 2017 for Rolling Stone, and it sort of introduces the topic, and and I think if Walter Schaub or the ethics office was aware of it, um, or if anybody asked questions, they obviously didn't get anywhere with it. They didn't get anybody to have to, you know, add more or, or explain. And I think, again, this is part of the problem is that there's an enormous amount of information on his disclosures, but even the, what's on the disclosures, is it's not really explained why it's there. So there's 176 companies on the, on the additional agreement. What is the conflict? Okay. And the level of researcher tracking that and monitoring you would have to do to in order to make sure that he adhered to a recusal um, uh, agreement is is enormous. I don't. I, is anybody doing that at the ethics office now or at the SEC's ethics office? So when you start talking about uh, additional complex, you know, the machinery of the capital market system, you know, the transfer agent registrar, um, you know, the organizations that create legal entities and shell companies for all kinds of people that want to have multiple LLCs, you know, I mean, wealthy people don't buy property in their own name anymore. Wealthy people don't set up, you know, all kinds of, you know, entities to uh, transact business or make transactions in their own names anymore. Everything is set up in, you know, anonymous LLCs. We saw that with Steve Mnuchin, okay? His disc- everything is some, you know, LLC that, you know, lasts for as long as it's necessary for the transaction to take place or to, you know, um, uh, go through its its life uh, style. Um, and... That particular issue um, was never really pursued when he was appointed. Whether people knew about it, whether anybody who uh, questioned him in the Senate or in the House was aware of it and tried to get more information, um, basically they threw up their hands and gave up. So now you look at it again and say, well, maybe we should be looking at this again because it, it suggests a much broader, vaster, uh, deeper a uh, set of connections and 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 co- potential conflicts um, that are critically important, even more critically important when you're the chief uh, prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, where everybody comes uh, across your desk. 
And um, since my newsletters came out and since Clayton's name has now been um, uh, put up for this, uh, for the, for the U S attorney job, um, uh, I've been, um, uh, I've been um, uh, in contact with someone who has more information about that particular issue. So I'm, I'm pursuing that issue in terms of trying to update it. Well, when you're, when you're ready, you'll come back on again, because this is uh, fascinating stuff. One more quick question on Jay Clayton, and then we'll pivot a bit to Wirecard and EY and that whole incident, because we're very curious to get your take on it. Um, your latest um, newsletter at The Dig talked about KPMG and whether or not Jay Clayton had gone a little soft uh, on that incident. Talk to us a little bit about the background and then what motivated you to write the the letter at the dig, and then your conclusions from that letter. So um, I really was, um, it was really serendipitous. It was really kind of just luck that I wrote these two pieces um, before this announcement came out. This issue, you know, was raised on late Friday night. Um, I teach, I'm teaching now a summer school class at Ohio State on accounting ethics uh, on Thursday and Friday mornings. So I was in a rush to kind of get my weekly writing out, and I put the big Clayton piece on Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs out on Wednesday, and then the piece that was about KPMG on Thursday after my class. And then, you know, okay, I'm done for the week, and I can focus on teaching. And uh, instead, uh, this news comes out on Friday night when I'm exhausted from two days of, of teaching. Um, the KPMG piece was, again, along the way when I was researching, you know, trying to match up um, what people were concerned about at the time of his uh, nomination, the companies and firms that they were concerned about, with what was on his recusal list and what was on the list of closed investigations. I noticed that, you know, in a couple of news stories, and then I traced it back to his Penn Law uh, resume because he's a he was an adjunct at Penn Law, his alma mater. Um, that he was also uh, 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 working uh, at one point in time for three of the KPMG entities outside of the U.S. At the time, uh, frankly, a time that I'm very familiar with because it was when KPMG was um, creating the Bearing Point uh, Consulting Firm, uh, which was a separate entity, a spinoff. And um, the foreign, the non-U.S. firms were making a decision about whether or not they would have their consulting arms join Bearing Point or they would uh, keep them within their uh, firm or they would sell them to somebody else. But in general, you know, the, the foreign firms didn't do, didn't always follow what the U.S. firm wanted to do. And so Jay Clayton represented three of the non-U.S. KPMG firms, UK, Netherlands, and Germany, uh, in their decisions about how to, dis how to disposition their consulting arms. One of them sold to Bearing Point, and uh, two of them sold to another firm out of the Netherlands called Atos. And Jay Clayton represented KPMG, the KPMG firms in each case, um, and that's around 2002, uh, that period. I, I, I almost fell off my chair because I had already written that he had an affinity with working with PwC clients, but I had no idea that he had also picked up, you know, these odd, you know, transactions uh, and, you know, outside of the U.S. for some very unusual situation way back in 2002. And, you know, you don't get that referral 
sitting in New York unless the U.S. firm says, here's your guy that you can work with. Here's a guy who can man it, who can handle this for you. And, and so that just made me think, again, when the language of the KPMG PCOB scandal um, uh, actions came out in 2018, and then later in 2019 when they finally find the firm, um, the original language when they found out that uh, KPMG partners, uh, senior partners in the audit practice were uh, conspiring to steal regulatory data in order to cheat on the inspections from the regulator. Um, when the SEC found out about that, Jay Clayton was enormously conciliatory. He made sure to make sure to tell the markets, to tell uh, investors, to tell even the companies that were KPMG clients, there was no reason to be concerned about the quality of KPMG's audits, that this was sort of an anomalous outlier situation and that there was no reason to believe that their integrity of their overall audit work was in jeopardy, that, you know, you didn't have to switch. They didn't want to have a massive run on the firm, like what happened with Arthur Anderson when um, Arthur Anderson started getting in trouble for Enron. And so it was, it's sort of like the light bulb went on, you know, all these people are playing golf together. All these people are having dinners together. All these people are socializing together. He doesn't want KPMG to go down, not only because it's, it, nobody would know what to do. The, the, you can't operate with three firms, okay? We have four large global audit firms. The, the, uh, the amount of work that needs to be done in order to do audits according to how legally it's required right now requires at least these four firms. The volume just would not be able to be absorbed by three firms if one of them uh, disappeared for one reason or another. And so no government agency wants to be responsible for making one disappear. They do not want to precipitate a run on one of the firms. And he went out of his way in 2018 to make a statement to make sure that he calmed the markets. And uh, I'm working on some academic research related to this issue, and we're not seeing that any of the clients uh, left KPMG after that. I mean, a huge ethical, legal, regulatory breach of every oath you take as an accountant, okay? And companies did not leave KPMG. We have a, a GE decided to switch finally from KPMG after many years of, you know, all kinds of back and forth and negative views about GE's accounting, et cetera. But really, uh, you know, my view is that that's more about GE than it is about KPMG. It's about GE having an auditor for 120 years or 10 years or whatever it is and realizing that this might be a good thing to do to get a clean um, sweep and and give the market a view that they're getting a fresh set of eyes. They didn't want to do it. It was it's not going to be an easy thing to do. It might not even happen for other reasons, which I, I'm I'm going to write about. But it's it's not because KPMG got caught up in this scandal. Um, it's because of issues at GE. So Clayton went out of his way to make sure that KPMG survived and thrived as they did when they decided not to prosecute KPMG in 2005 for tax shelter fraud, not to indict the firm. It was a conscious SDNY 
criminal decision not to indict and have it uh, have the same fate as Arthur Anderson. And we have a conscious decision again not to do that. But I started thinking, you know, was Clayton's actions, uh, did it go beyond this idea of protecting the market and protecting the firm from, you know, a run on it? Did he also have sort of this affinity for KPMG, given his previous uh, um, activities uh, to help them as, a, as clients? So not to get too cynical, but uh, let me get cynical. Uh, forget a run on K- KPMG, uh, given the prevalence of fraud in this market, knowing that KPMG is an ethical cesspool might make a run to KPMG happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that actually, that actually is not, uh, is not uh, as cynical as you think, because there's actually been academic research, and I wrote about it at MarketWatch, that there are clients who gravitate to um, the audit firms that don't report issues. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's well known, you know, there are, you know, whether it's, whether it's microcap, whether it's, uh, it's, you know, reverse mergers, whether it's large industrial companies who just want you to go easy and let them do whatever they want on revenue recognition. Um, there are companies who will gravitate towards the audit firm that will work with them. And so, yeah, that there's, that's a reputation that some firms or some partners or some practices want, as being easy to work with. So they're not worried anymore about a bad reputation. Okay. They're not worried about people will think we're not the honest angels anymore. They're worried about companies thinking that they're too much of a hard case. And so there's academic research that supports that view. So let's close on the topic of the week. Um, Fascinating events going on in Germany that I think could potentially cause a pivot and mark the top in this cycle's uh, fraud bonanza. And that is the complete collapse of Wirecard, which is a payment processing company, a member of the DAX 30 in Germany. We've had two episodes where we've covered this, quite timely for us. We're very fortunate. I should say up front, we've been loud on this name because of those two guests. We've done none of the work. Um, we're just happy to provide them a platform to, to share some of their work and then to um, pile on a little bit on Twitter. But also, I think it's an important moment uh, of advocacy for the FinTwit community. There's a whole range of people that are sort of been born around the Tesla um, shenanigans that are sort of becoming more broader, and this podcast is one of those. Um, Wirecard collapsed because EY wouldn't sign off on their 2019 financials because there's, and this is the best expression ever, $2 billion of cash missing. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are as you watch that situation implode uh, and whether or not this might cause an existential threat to EY. And then more broadly, whether this might not finally cause the big four auditing firms to tighten the screws on what they know in their portfolio is a little, sh- a little shaky and whether or not we might not see a series of accounting frauds hit the papers in the next three to six months. So let's put some, um, some sort of, uh, you know, um, I don't want to say boundaries, but sort of put some of this in perspective. Um, so Wirecard in the story and Dan McCrum's work at FT is just phenomenal. Bravo. I've been following it since the beginning. And um, what they highlighted is um you know, any reasonable person could see were significant red flags that um, pointed to 
you know, a disaster waiting to happen. Now we've seen those companies before where it looked like there were, uh, there was obvious issues that how could anybody not think that there's issues and, you know, they pull it out of their tail. Okay. The company pulls it out of their tail, whether it's because they have strong, you know, uh, support, institutional support on the other side and people pump money in or because they just, you know, get this kind of regulatory, um, uh, you know, uh, abeyance that you know the regulators just don't act you know they just say we want to support you you know we do not want you to fail we like having a fintech in germany you know we like being sexy and so you know it was an accident waiting to happen right but you never can be sure anymore that that the truth is going to prevail and and the normal consequences are going to result however Ernst & Young in Germany, okay, who is the one that signs the audit for Wirecard, uh, Ernst & Young's German member firm um, is uh, number uh, three out of four uh, in terms of uh, firms that audit um, U.S. listed companies. Okay, so we can look and say, yes, they are registered with the U.S. regulator, the PCOB. Yes, they do audit some U.S. listed firms. Um, they audit... Uh, uh, let's see, I counted them four, okay, some other U.S. listed firms. Deloitte only audits two, but KPMG in Germany is the big kahuna, okay? They have Deutsche Bank, and they have several others, and they have 10. Wirecard is not listed on a U.S. exchange, okay? So that's your first sort of thing, right? It's not listed on a U.S. exchange, its auditor is not required. This would be an audit that would never be inspected by the PCOB. This is a pure German uh, situation, company audit, the whole thing. So EY uh, in Germany operates, you know, according to their own rules. They don't have to answer to the U.S. or the U.S. regulators on this particular situation. But, you know, is EY an important hub in the global network for EY? EY, the global firm. Yes, Germany is an important hub for any of the big four, even if, you know, the companies that they're auditing are not U.S. listed companies. Because when you have a global hub like Germany, you have not only the companies that are listed, and this applies in a big way in China, okay? This, uh, this analogy is totally applicable to the China situation. You have the U.S. listed companies that EY Germany audits, four of them. Wirecard is not one of them. But you also have EY Germany sitting there and being on call for all firms all over the world, including the U.S., to ask them to help with the audits of any operations in Germany that um, need to be audited and go into the consolidated audit. So multinationals that have significant operations in Germany that are audited by EYUS or EYUK, for example, or EY Australia or EY South Africa or EY France or EY Italy or whatever, okay, need EY Germany as an important hub. And there's probably six places in the world where that hub, that uh, office, that member firm is an important hub not only for the firms that it audits that are listed on its home exchanges or on U.S. exchanges, but for the services it performs to other member firms for multinationals. And that's the situation in a big way in China, and that's the situation in a big way with uh, a member firm like EY Germany. So 
if, for example, because of all this, because of the contrition that now the regulators in Germany feel for having like miss not miss this but let it let it go for so long um let's say that like in india where um the regulators uh said pwc and deloitte and i think kpmg or one of the three of the big four can't do uh local audits because of all of the problems that they've had in india Okay. They, they restrict their activities and say, you, are, you lose your license to perform as an auditor in our country in this limited area. For example, in India, uh, they've been restricted in terms of their activities on local audits. That doesn't restrict them from necessarily performing all of this extra work for, let's say, like the U.S. firm or the U.K. firm for multinationals. And does it restrict them? Does it hamper them? Does it, you know, make them sort of cobbled? Yeah, it's a little bit because it restricts their activities and maybe people will leave the firm and the firm will sort of collapse, etc. cetera, uh, because people don't want to work there anymore. On the other hand, they maybe can get through it if it's a short time. But if Germany would actually say, EY Germany, you are out of business. You are completely corrupt you cannot exist anymore in any way, shape, or form, which is what happened in Japan with PwC um, back in 2005, 2006. The firm was so corrupt because of the Canabo scandal and some other uh, things. They actually had partners that went to jail because they were conspiring with clients uh, in frauds. Um, they had to shut down the firm completely and start a new firm from scratch. And PwC has never you know, really recovered from that in Japan. They never gain back their market share. So if Germany should completely take EY Germany out, if the German regulators should take them out completely, yes, that would significantly hobble the EY global network. Would it collapse EY globally? Probably not. Because EY uh, Germany does not significantly impact a lot of U.S. listed firms. They could easily go to one of the other firms. And it might be only a temporary thing. I don't think it's going to matter. Think about what the, what the issue was here. Um, cash confirmations. I mean, that's like auditing 101. And it's also a problem that came up in multiple audits over the, over the years. And it doesn't seem to have uh, acted as a deterrent that Satyam was, this was the issue. Parmalat, this was the issue. Um, several of the Chinese reverse mergers, this was the issue, that there was uh, unwillingness, inability, or potentially corrupt um, effort to uh, verify cash. And so some company was able to fake cash to this extent. I mean, $2 billion is a big number, but you know the number was a billion in Satyam, the number was a billion in Parmalat. And the numbers were big in relative to the size of the companies when it happened in Japan, in uh, China with the reverse merger. So, you know, uh, audit firms are going to roll over when it makes, their, makes sense for them. And the question is, is will somebody take them out completely? Big governments don't want to be responsible for collapsing the audit uh, industry. It is really remarkable. And I 
I wonder if we'll have uh, a generation of young people that are hearing all of this going on and actually think that, uh, you know, the field of accounting um, is far more interesting and perhaps a little sexier than they realized um, <laughs> when, you, when you think of, you know, and we've kind of joked on, on this program, uh, you know, that so much of our criticism of Tesla, you know, gets written off by the, the bulls as bean counting. You know, that's just accounting. It doesn't really have anything to do with the reality of the growth and the story and, and all the disruption that's occurring. Um, but actually what we're seeing is that the field of accounting is uh, incredibly complex and fascinating and could really provide an area for people to make a big difference. Well, one of the things that is just um, kind of shocking is, I mean, no surprise to see that Marcus Braun has been, you know, hauled away in handcuffs and, you know, has been arrested. He was CEO of Wirecard. But the chief operating officer, Marcus Braun, um, got on a plane and headed to Manila, I believe, to go hunt down the money. Um, is this... It was Jay, I think is the... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say Marcus Braun yeah, again? Yeah. I said it twice. Thank yeah. you. No, Jan. Jan, Jan Marsalek. Uh, Jan Marsalek is the COO. Thank you, CC. Um, and he got on a plane, uh, miraculously still had a passport. Um, oh, and now there's Financial Times. TC showing me that just two hours ago, a headline has popped up on the Financial Times. Philippine authorities search for Wirecard's number two in fraud probe. Um, what do you think is happening there? Aside well, from the obvious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's well, he's shaking out the couch cushions for $2 billion he's, he's in, hook in up Manila. With OJ. He's going to hook up with OJ and find the yeah. cost killer, too. It, it may be, it may be a, a Gosen thing, you know, the guy that, that ended yeah. up yeah. leaving Japan, um, you know, in a suitcase or whatever. Um, but what's funny is it's the Philippines. Um, so, obviously, they were working with these third-party, you know, entities that were in, you know, all of these uh, obscure, the, the traditional outsourcing kind of places, um, the places that we've heard about, you know, where, you know, all this, uh, you know, the hacker culture is, is because there's, you know, lacks, uh, lacks regulation. And so, the fact that he was allowed to leave the country, the fact that he's going there, um, it's just really odd. And so everybody has sort of come to the conclusion that maybe the money never even existed. So what he's going to look for, I don't know. But I find it kind of odd because um, the Philippines is a place where a lot of uh, organizations have um, call center outsourcing and other kinds of offshore um, transaction processing kinds of things, including the FT. So maybe he's going to uh, find somebody with the FT who knows more. It's really, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, and I, I, I'm hopeful that this turn of events is a catalyst for the cleansing of at least some of the big name frauds in the market, but maybe I'm being naive. Look, Francine, it's been a, yet another wonderful hour with you. Um, we appreciate you coming back on such short notice. Uh, I think you're the quickest turnaround for a repeat guest. Um, <laughs> that wasn't recorded in all one sitting like we did with Aaron Greenspan on episodes um, three and four. Uh, why don't we finish uh, with a commercial for The Dig. Tell our, uh, tell our listeners how they can subscribe, where they can get it, um, what it's all about. We love reading it. Uh, every time I see it come in my inbox, I know I'm in for a good read. Uh, give us the quick commercial for The Dig, and then uh, thanks again for coming on. Sure. The Dig is my newsletter that comes out periodically. I try to write weekly, both for paid subscribers and for uh, everybody else. Um, so there's free content and there's content under the paywall. You can go to thedig.substack.com and take a look at what's there and hopefully subscribe. 
Um, it's $300 a year, $25 a month. Uh, and if you're a group, please talk to me. Um, I'd love to have lots of people reading it and for them to spread it around. Terrific. Thanks so much, Francine. It's been lots of fun, and I will look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. Voters, you have a chance to make a very important vote coming up. Yes, that's right. The man who saved Tesla, the man who saved Elon Musk, and saved Goldman Sachs, and maybe even SpaceX is running for SDNY, yes. And here, we like to say, Jay Clayton, he's not that bad a guy. Vote for Jay Clayton for SDNY. Yes, that's right, I'm Jay Clayton, and I'm not that bad. I'm Jay Clayton, and I approve of this ad. Celebrity voice impersonation by Tesler. Don't forget to vote.